You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 10, given on January 10, 1921. Taking my start yesterday from certain formal considerations, I showed how we should conceive the connections between what might be called the processes of the human metabolic system and the processes of the head, the nervous system, or whatever you wish to call it in the spirit of the indications given in my book titled The Case for Anthroposophy. It would be regarded as quite out of the question to study the movements of a compass needle on the Earth's surface in such a way as to try to explain these movements solely out of what can be observed within the space occupied by the needle. The movements of the compass needle are, as you know, brought into connection with the magnetism of the earth. We connect the momentary direction of the needle with the direction of the earth's magnetism, that is, with the orienting line which can be drawn between the north and south magnetic poles of the earth. When it's a question of explaining the phenomena presented by the compass needle, we go out of the region of the needle itself and try to enter into the totality with the elements that have been collected in search of an explanation. This is the only way we can explain phenomena that manifest themselves as a sequence of facts belonging to some totality. This methodological rule is certainly observed in regard to some phenomena, to those, I would say, the significance of which is fairly obvious. But it's not observed when it's a question of explaining and understanding more complicated phenomena. Just as it's impossible to explain the phenomena of the magnetic needle in terms of the needle itself, it's equally and fundamentally impossible to explain the phenomena relating to the organism in terms solely of the organism itself or from connections that don't belong to a totality, to a whole, And just for that reason, because there's so little inclination to seek holistic explanations, we arrive at those results put forward by the modern scientific method in which the broader connections are almost entirely left out of the picture. This method encloses the phenomena, whatever they may be, within the field of vision of the microscope, while the celestial phenomena are restricted to what's observable externally with the help of instruments. In seeking for explanations, no attempt is made to consider the necessity of reaching out to the surrounding totality within which a phenomenon is localized. Only when we become familiar with this quite indispensable methodological principle are we in a position to bring our judgment to bear upon such things as I was describing to you yesterday. 
Only in this way shall we begin to gain a proper appreciation of the way that phenomena, such as those within the human organism, play out within a complete holistic context. Let's recall what I described at the very beginning of this course of lectures. I drew your attention to the fact that the principle of metamorphosis, as it appeared first in the work of Goethe and Alken, has to be modified if it's to be applied with real understanding to the human being. The attempt was made, and it was made with genius on the part of Goethe, to derive the formation of the cranial bone from that of the vertebra. These investigations were continued by others in a way more akin to 19th century method, and the further development of this kind of research, leaving aside for now the question of its value, can be studied by comparing how this problem of the metamorphosis of one form of bone into another was conceived on the one hand by Goethe and Aachen, and on the other, for example, by the anatomist Gegenbauer. I have already mentioned this in the course of these lectures, but let's recall again. Real knowledge of these phenomena can arise only if we understand how two types of bone in the human organism, not the animal but the human organism, utterly different from the point of view of their morphology, are actually related to one another. Bones far removed from one another in the aspect of their form would be a tubular or long bone, femur or humerus, for example, and a cranial bone. Making a superficial comparison, without really entering into the inner nature of the form, and bringing a whole range of phenomena into connection with it, is not enough to reveal the morphological relationship between two kinds of bones that are polar opposites, polar opposites once more in regard to their form. We only begin to perceive it if we compare the inner surface of a tubular bone with the outer surface of a cranial bone. Only thus do we get the true correspondence, see figure 1, that we must have in order to establish the morphological relation. The inner surface of the tubular bone corresponds morphologically to the outer surface of the cranial bone. The cranial bone can be derived from the tubular bone if we picture it as being inverted, to begin with, in the way that one turns a glove inside out. In the glove, however, when I turn the outer surface to the inside and the inner to the outside, I get a form similar to the original one. But if, in the moment of turning the inside of the tubular bone to the outside, certain tensions come into play, and the mutual relationships of the forces change, in such a way that the form which was inside and has now been turned outward alters the shape and distribution of its surface. Then we obtain, through inversion, according to the principle of the turning inside out of a glove, the outer surface of the cranial bone, as derived from the inner surface of the tubular bone. From this you can conclude as follows. The inner space of the tubular bone this compressed inner space corresponds with regard to the human cranium to the entire outer world. You must consider the outer universe forming the outside of the human head and what works within 
tending from within toward the inner surface of the tubular bone as related to their influence upon the human constitution. You have to see these as belonging together. You have to regard the world on the inside of the tubular bone as a kind of inversion of the world surrounding us outside. Thus the formation of the bones gives us a first glimpse of the true principle of metamorphosis. The other bones are intermediary formations. Morphologically they mediate between the two opposite extremes, which correspond to a complete inversion, accompanied by a change in the forces determining the surface. This idea needs to be extended to the entire human organism, however. In one way it comes to expression for us, especially clearly in the bones, but in all the human organs we have to distinguish between two opposing factors, something that works outward from an unknown interior, as we'll call it for the moment, and something that works inward from without. The latter corresponds to all that surrounds us human beings on the planet Earth. Indeed, the tubular bone and the cranial bone represent a remarkable polarity. Take the tubular bone and think of this center line, see figure 2. This line is in a way the place of origin of what works outward in a direction perpendicular to the relevant surface, see figure 3. And now, if you now think about what envelops the human cranium, you have what corresponds to the central line of the tubular bone, but how must the counterpart of this line be drawn? You have to draw it somewhere as a circle, or sometimes even as a spherical surface, situated at some indeterminate remove. See figure 4. All the lines that can be drawn from the center line of the tubular bone toward its inner surface, figure 3, correspond in regard to the cranial bone to all the lines that can be drawn from a spherical surface as though to meet in the center of the earth. See figure 4. In this way you find a connection, approximate, needless to say, between a straight line or a system of straight lines passing through a tubular bone and bearing a certain relation to the vertical axis of the bodily organism, the direction of which coincides in fact with that of the earth's radius, and a sphere surrounding the earth at an indeterminate distance. In other words, the connection is as follows. The radius of the earth has the same cosmic value in regard to the vertical posture of the human organism perpendicular to the surface of the earth as a spherical surface, a cosmic spherical surface has in regard to the structure of the cranium. This, however, is the same antithesis which you experience within yourself if you simultaneously make yourself aware of the feeling of being inside your own organism and of experiencing the outer world as something self-supporting. This is the polarity you reach if you compare your feeling of self, that feeling of self which is really based on the fact that in normal life you can depend upon your bodily organization not making you dizzy, but rather keeping you in a right relationship to the force of gravity, with all that's present in your consciousness in connection with what you see around you through the senses, even as far away as the stars.
putting all this together, you'll be able to say that the same relation obtains between this feeling of being in yourself and the feeling of consciousness you have in perceiving the outer world as between the structure of your body and the structure of your cranium. Thus we're led to the relationship between what we might call quote, earthly influence upon the human constitution of such a character that it works in the direction of the earth's radius, close quote, and what we might call, quote, the influence which makes itself felt in the entire circumference of our life of consciousness and which we must look for in the sphere, in what really is for us the inner wall, the inner surface of a hollow sphere, close quote. This polarity prevails in our normal waking conscious life. If we leave out of account what's in our consciousness as a result of observing our earthly environment, we can understand this polarity, roughly speaking, as the antithesis between that which is the sphere of the stars on the one hand and earthly consciousness. Feeling ourselves to be earthy, consciousness of the earthly impulses living within us on the other. If we bring this terrestrial impulse, this radial earth impulse, into a relationship with our consciousness of the sphere, if we observe how this polarity prevails in normal waking consciousness, we'll perceive that it's always there, alive within us, playing its part in our conscious life. We live far more in this polarity than we usually imagine. It's always present, and we live within it. Really, the connection between the forming of mental images and the life of the will can be studied only by considering the polarity between sphere, in quotes, and radius, in quotes. In psychology, too, we would come to results that are more real with regard to the connection of our world of ideas and mental pictures which is so various and so extraordinarily extensive, with the more unified world of our will. If a similar relationship were sought between them, which can be imagined as the relationship of the surface of a sphere to the corresponding radius. Now, let's look at everything that's at work in our waking consciousness, such that it fulfills our soul life, so to speak. Now let's consider how it acts upon us when we're in quite a different situation, namely when we're undergoing embryonic life. We can well imagine, indeed we must imagine, that the same polarity will be at work here too, only in another way. During the embryonic period we don't direct toward the outer world the same activity which afterward dims down this polarity to a pictorial one. At this time, the polarity affects our plastic organization in a much more real way than when it becomes active in our life of mind and soul as a pictorial polarity. If, therefore, we project the activity of consciousness back in time to the embryonic development, we find what we otherwise have in the activity of consciousness, but we have it in a more intense and a more real degree. Just as we clearly see the relation between sphere 
and radius in our consciousness. So, to reach any real result, we must look for this same polarity of heavenly sphere and earthly activity in what happens in the life of the embryo. In other words, we have to look for the genesis of human embryonic life by finding a resultant between what takes place out in the starry world and activity in the sphere and what takes place within the human constitution as a result of the radial forces exerted by the earth. What I have just described must be taken into account with the same methodological rigor as the earth's magnetism is taken into account when explaining the compass needle. There may be much that is hypothetical even in this, but I won't take up that issue now. I only wish to point out we have no right to restrict our considerations to the embryo alone, to explain the processes taking place within it simply out of the embryo itself. It's just the same way as we have no right to explain the phenomenon of the compass needle in terms of itself alone, so too we have no right to explain the form and development of the embryo purely on the basis of the embryo itself. In attempting to explain the embryo, we have to take these two opposites into account. Just as we take the Earth's magnetism into account in connection with the compass needle, so we have to observe the polarity of sphere and radial activity in order to understand what is forming itself in the embryo, at which, when the embryo is born, then fades into the pictorial quality of the experience of consciousness. The point is, we have to learn to see the relationship that exists in the human organism between tubular or long bone and cranial bone in the other systems too, in muscle and nerve and so on. And when we do study this polarity, we're led out into the life of the cosmos. Consider how closely related, as described in my book titled The Case for Anthroposophy, the whole essence and content of the human metabolic system is to what I am now characterizing as being under the influence of the radial element, and how closely related the head system is to what I have just described as being under the influence of the sphere. Then you will say, we have to distinguish in the human constitution what determines our sensory nature and what determines our metabolic life. Moreover, these two elements are related to one another as heavenly sphere to earthly radius. Therefore, we have to seek the result of celestial activity in all that we bear in the systems associated with our head. And we have to seek what belongs to the earthward tending activity, as it were, toward the center of the earth, in the processes of our metabolism. Both these activities combine to form a resultant these two realms of activity and influence are divorced in human nature. It's as though they represent two one-sidednesses, and the middle realm, the rhythmic realm, mediates between them. In the rhythmic system we actually have something, if I may so express myself, which is a realm of mutual interaction between earth and the heavens. And now if we wish to go further, we have to consider various other relationships which reveal themselves to us in the realm of reality. I will now draw your attention 
to something very intimately connected with what I have just been describing. There is a customary way of dividing up the outer world which surrounds us and to which we belong as physical beings. We divide it into mineral kingdom, plant kingdom, animal kingdom, and regard humans as the culmination of these realms of nature. Now, if we wish to obtain a clearer view of the things we have been describing in connection with the working of the celestial phenomena, we have to turn our attention to something further. No unprejudiced observer would deny that with our human organization as it is now, in the present phase of the cosmic evolution of humanity, our faculties of cognition are adapted solely to the mineral kingdom. Take the kind of laws we seek in nature, and you will agree that we're certainly not adapted to all aspects of our environment. To put it bluntly, all that we really understand is the mineral kingdom. Hence all the efforts to refer the other kingdoms of nature back to the laws of the mineral domain. After all, it's because of this that such confusion has arisen with regard to mechanism and vitalism. To the ordinary view which is ours today, vitalism remains either a vague hypothesis, as it was in earlier times, or else its manifestations are explained mechanistically in terms of the mineral world. The ideal, to reach an understanding of life, is unaccompanied by any recognition of the fact that life must be understood as life. On the contrary, the fundamental aim is to refer life back to the laws of the mineral realm. Precisely this betrays a vague awareness of the fact that our human faculties of knowledge are only adapted to understand the mineral kingdom and not the plant nor the animal. We study, on the one hand, the mineral kingdom itself, and on the other hand, its counterpart, namely our own knowledge of the mineral kingdom, in that these two correspond to one another. And we have to relate all our knowledge to the heavens. But for the reasons just given, when we study the heavens, we must relate that knowledge to the sphere immediately adjoining, namely the mineral kingdom. We have to admit, in regard to the systems of the head, we're organized from out of the celestial sphere. Therefore, what underlies the forces of the mineral kingdom must also be organized from the celestial sphere in some way. Compare, then, what you have in your sphere of understanding, the whole compass of your knowledge of the mineral kingdom, with what's actually there in the mineral kingdom in the outer world. And you'll be led to say, what's thus within you relates to what's in the mineral kingdom outside you as an image relates to reality. Now, we have to think of this relationship more concretely than in the form of image and reality, and we're helped to do so by what I said before. Our attention is drawn to what underlies the human metabolic system and to the forces active there, forces which are connected with the pole of earthly activity and also with radiality, in quotes, with the radius. In seeking for the polar opposite within ourselves to that part of our constitution that provides us with knowledge, we are directed from the encompassing sphere 
to the earth. The radii converge to the middle point of the earth. In the radial element we have something by which we feel ourselves, which gives us the feeling of being real. This is not that thing which fills us with pictures, in which we are merely conscious. Rather, this is the aspect of our experience that allows us to appear real to ourselves. When we really experience this polarity, we always enter into that which we see as the mineral kingdom. We're led from something that's framed only for the image to something that is framed for reality. In other words, in connection with the cause and origin of our life of knowledge, we are led to the wide encompassing sphere. We conceive it in the first place as a sphere. Whereas in following the radii of the sphere toward the middle of the earth, we are led to the middle point of the earth as the other pole. Thinking this out in more detail, we might say, well, according to the Ptolemaic paradigm, for example, out there is the blue sphere, and here a point, see figure 5. We would like to think of a polar point in the center of the earth. When conceived in a simplified way, every point of the sphere would have its reflected point in the earth's center. But of course it is not to be understood so simply. I shall speak more in detail later on. To what extent these things correspond exactly is not the question for the moment. The stars, in effect, would be here, see figure 6. So that in thinking of the sphere, concentrated in the center of the earth, we would have to think of it in the following way. The polar opposite of this star is here, of this one here, and so on. Figure 6. We come then to a complete mirroring of what is outside in the interior of the earth. Picturing this in regard to each individual planet, we have, say, Jupiter, and then a, in quotes, polar Jupiter within the Earth. We come to something that works outward from within the Earth in the way that Jupiter works in the Earth's environment. We arrive at a mirroring. Parenthesis, in reality, it is the opposite way round, but I will now describe it like this. Close parenthesis. A mirroring of what is outside the Earth by the interior of the earth. And if we think about the effects of this reflection in the forms of the minerals, then we must also think about the effects of what works outside in the cosmic sphere itself in forming our capacity to understand the minerals. In other words, we can think of the whole celestial sphere as being mirrored in the earth. We conceive the mineral kingdom of the earth as a result of this reflection. And we conceive that what lives within us, enabling us to understand the mineral kingdom, comes from what surrounds us out in the celestial space. Meanwhile, the realities we grasp by means of this faculty of understanding come from within the earth. You need only follow up this idea and then cast a glance at the human being, at the human countenance. And if you really look at this human countenance, you'll hardly be able to doubt that in it something is expressed of the outer celestial sphere. Nor will you doubt that there also appears in it what is present as pictorial experience of the heavenly sphere, in the soul. 
namely the forces which rise up into the realm of soul activity from the realm of bodily activity, after having been at work more intensively in this bodily realm during embryonic life. Thus we find a connection between what's outside us in outer reality and the structures in our own organism that give us the capacity to understand that outer reality. We might put it as follows. The cosmos produces the outer reality, and our power to understand this outer reality is organized physically by virtue of the fact that the effects of the cosmic sphere upon us are now limited to our cognitional faculties. Therefore we have to distinguish in the genesis of the earth as well between two phases, one in which active forces work in such a way that the real earth itself is created, and then a later phase of earth evolution in which the forces work so as to create the human faculty for understanding the realities. Only in this way do we really come near to an understanding of the universe. You might say, well and good, but this method of understanding is less secure than the method used today with the aid of microscope and telescope. It may be that to some people it appears less secure, but if things are so constituted that we can't reach the realities with the methods in favor today, then we're faced with the absolute necessity of comprehending the reality with other modes of understanding. We shall have to get used to developing those other methods. It's of no avail to say you'll have nothing to do with such lines of thought since they appear too uncertain. If only such a degree of certainty were possible. However, if you really follow up this line of thought, you'll see that the degree of certainty is just as great as in your conception of a real triangle in the outer world when you take hold of it in thought with the inner idea of construction of a triangle. It's the same principle, the same manner of comprehending outer reality in the one case as in the other. This should be borne in mind. Certainly the question arises, taking these thoughts as I have developed them here, it's possible to become aware of such connections in a general way, but how can one reach a more definite comprehension of these things? For it is only after they have achieved a more definite form that they can serve to grasp reality from within. In order to go into this, I have to draw your attention to something else. Let's return to what I said yesterday, for example, in regard to the Cassini curve. Bracket C, figures 3 through 7 in Lecture 9, pages 152 and forward. Close bracket. We know that this curve has three, or if you like, four forms. You remember the Cassini curve is determined as follows. Given two points A and B, I will call the distance between them 2A. Then any point of the curve will be such that AM times MB equals B squared, that is, a constant. And I obtain the various forms of the Cassini curve according to whether A, that is, half the distance between the foci, is greater than, equal to, or less than B. I obtain the lemniscate when A equals B, and the discontinuous curve when A is greater than B. 
Imagine now that I wanted not only to solve this geometrical problem, assuming two constant magnitudes a and b, and then setting up equations to determine the distances of m from a and b. Suppose I wanted to do more than this, namely to move in the plane from one form of line or curve to another by treating as variable magnitudes those magnitudes which remain constant for a particular curve. After all, in the last lecture we envisioned only certain specific instances when A is greater or smaller than B. Between these instances there are an infinite number of possibilities. I can pass over quite continuously to the construction of one form of the Cassini curve after another. And I shall obtain these different forms if, let us say, to the variability of the first order, say between y and x, I add a variability of the second order. That is, if I allow my construction of the curves as they pass over from one to the other continuously to take its course in such a way that a remains a function of b. What am I doing when I do this? I'm constructing curves in such a way that I create a continuous moving system of Cassini curves passing over via the Lemnus gate into the discontinuous forms, not at random, but by basing it on a variability of the second order, in that I bring the constants of the curves themselves into relationship with one another in an equation such that A is a function of B. Mathematically, it's perfectly feasible, of course, but what do we obtain by doing this? Just think, in this way I obtain the law governing the character of a surface such that there is a qualitative difference, even mathematically speaking, among all its points. At every point another quality is present. I cannot comprehend the surface obtained like this in the same way as I comprehended some abstract Euclidean plane. I have to look upon it as a surface that is differentiated within itself. And if by rotation I create three-dimensional forms, then I would obtain bodies differentiated within themselves. If you think of what I said yesterday, namely that the Cassini curve is also the curve along which a point must move in space if illuminated from a point B, it reflects the light to a point A with constant intensity. And if you can also bear in mind that the constancy underlying the curve here actually calls forth a relation between the effects of light at different points, then, just as in this instance certain light effects result from the relation of the constants, so one can also imagine that a system of light effects would follow if a variability of the second order were added to the variability of the first. In this way you can create, even within mathematics itself, a process of transition from the quantitative to the qualitative aspect. It's considerations just such as these that has to be taken up in order to find a transition from quantity to quality. A start can be made from what it is we're really doing when we form an interconnection between the function within the variability of the second order and the function within variability of the first order. 
parenthesis, I'm using the term order in an unconventional way here, but you'll understand me since I've explained the whole thing from the very beginning. Close parenthesis. By turning our attention to this relationship between what I have called first and second order, we shall gradually come to see that our equations must be formed differently according to whether we're taking into account, for example, what in an ordinary bodily surface lies between the surface and our eye, EYE, or what lies behind the surface of the body. For a relationship like this relationship, between the variability of the first order and the variability of the second order, obtains between what I must consider as being between myself and the surface of a quite ordinary body, on the one hand, and what lies behind the surface of the body on the other. For example, suppose we're trying to understand the so-called reflection of the rays of light, what we observe when there's a reflecting surface. It's a process taking place, to begin with, between the observer and the surface of the body. Suppose that I conceive this as a confluence of equations flowing between me and the surface of the body in a variability of the first order, and then in this connection consider what's at work behind the surface so as to bring about the reflection as an equation in the variability of the second order. Then I'll arrive at very different formulas than are now applied according to purely mechanical laws, omitting phases of vibration and so on when dealing with reflection and refraction. In this way, it would become possible for us to create a form of mathematics capable of dealing with realities, and it is essential for this to happen if we want to find explanations, particularly in the realm of astronomical phenomena. In regard to the external world, we have before us what takes place between the surface of the physical earth and ourselves. However, in contemplating the celestial phenomena, say a loop of Venus, if we look only at the superficial facts, we also have before us something which plays out between us and some other thing. Yet, the reality confronting us in this case is in actuality like the realm beyond the sphere in its relationship to what's within the central point. However we look to the phenomena of the heavens, we have to recognize that we can't study them simply according to the laws of centric forces. Rather, we have to regard them in the light of laws that are related to the laws of centric forces as is the sphere to the radius. So it is, then, that if we want to develop any real explanation, we must not resort to calculations that emulate the kind used in mechanics to develop the laws of centric forces. Rather, we have to make both the calculations and all our geometrical models such that they relate to mechanics as sphere relates to radius. Then it will become apparent, and we'll speak about it this next time, that we need two things. First, we need the kind of thinking we see in mechanics and kinematics, which has essentially to do with centric forces, and second, in addition to this system, we need another having to do with rotating, shearing, and deforming movements. Only then, when we apply the meta-mechanical, metaphoronomical system for the rotating, shearing, and deforming movements, 
just as we now apply the familiar system of mechanics and kinematics to the centric forces and centric phenomena of movement, only then shall we arrive at an explanation of the celestial phenomena, taking our start from what lies empirically before us. The end of Lecture 10